The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Good morning. It's good to see you. Please take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll begin in verse 17 and continue on in our great journey through this awesome book that Paul has written by the Holy Spirit to the church of Corinth and now to us. And today we look at the Lord's Supper. And one of the amazing things to consider about this book is that if it weren't for all the major problems in the Corinthian church, we wouldn't have all these amazing teachings from Paul. And that if it weren't for them abusing the Lord's Supper in such a heavy-handed manner, we would never have had any teaching from the Apostle Paul on the Lord's Supper. Outside of the Gospels, I think this is the only passage where we learn more about the Lord's Supper. And so by God's providence, we benefit from the Corinthian church in this manner today. So let's read beginning in verse 17 through verse 34, and let's stand together in honor of Christ and honor the reading of his word as he speaks to us by the power of the Spirit. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. He had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let it meet at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Holy Father, now, would you give us ears to hear your word? Would you allow us now, by your spirit, to hear these words from the risen Christ and to take them to heart, that we would look at the body and the blood and remember our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So help us now, Lord. Even draw people for salvation unto you this morning. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Today, as a local church, we, we gather, we gather as people who are in need of grace. Every single one of us. We don't have it all figured out. There's no one here today that knows everything to do or knows how to do everything. And we're all looking to Jesus. I mean, I hope that's why most of us came here. We're not coming just to hear songs or, or to hear a sermon. We're not coming here just to get our tanks filled up for the week. No, we're coming here so we can look to Jesus together. But that's not what's happening in Corinth. We're coming together to encourage, to exhort one another, to look at Christ. But look what's happening in Corinth. Look at verse 17. And the following instructions, I do not commend you. That ties back to verse 2 where he says he does commend them about some things. And now in 17, he's saying, I cannot even begin to commend you on these things. Here's why. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That is a scathing thing to have said to a local church. When you gather, it's not better. It's worse. You ever, there was a phrase that was popular, I think, because of some book, and there was like a campaign on stuff. It was like, better together. That was the, the phrase. You know, rhyme sounds good, two words, easy. Better together. Paul says, you guys, you're not better together. Things are going downhill when you gather. And I think as a local church, this ought to be on our radar as we engage with one another, as we serve together, as we exhort one another, that we are looking to be better together when we gather. Every church, we must watch ourselves, watch our attitudes, watch how we are encouraging each other, that we are, that we're honoring each other, and that we're honoring the Lord together, walking in light of his word, and that when we do come together, it's not hypocrisy. When we do come together, it's not unrepentant sin. When we do come together, we're better for it. And this is the culture of the Corinthian church, a worsening of each other a doubling down on sin, but a gospel culture is a bettering of each other. It's an encouraging, it's a sanctifying, it's an exponential pursuit of holiness and enjoyment in Jesus together. So what's the problem here in Corinth? It's verse 18. For in the first place, so he has a lot of other things to say to them. He's only gonna say one. And then you can see at the end of 34, he says, I have other things to talk about. We'll talk about those when I get there. So he's just tackling one thing. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. So he's saying, I've heard some report that when you gather for the Lord's Supper, there's some divisions and rifts and splits and, and kind of splintered groups among you. And he, he's hearing this report. He hasn't seen it firsthand. They didn't tell them. Someone else has told him about this. And he says, and I believe it. There, I, yes, part of me, I totally believe this is you guys are off the rails. And at this point, right now, as we think about them and the Lord's Supper, we, we need to remove ourselves from Tomball, 21st century, as much as we can, and place ourselves in 1st century Greco-Roman Corinth. When they would meet for worship, and they would meet for the Lord's Supper, they weren't meeting in a building like this. Their church services did not look like ours. They're not gathering in an open space, in a room just for gathering. No, they, they didn't meet in a building, they met in a home. And they would met in a home that's big enough to hold everybody. So it would have been a wealthier person in the church. 
And the rich in Corinth, just like every other rich person in Corinth, their homes had two kinds of dining rooms. They would have had a very upscale, nice, classy, comfortable accommodations. There would be couches to lay down on. They would lay down and eat and only hold about 10 people. Then there would be another room, a larger room, very minimal, not much, pretty much just for standing. And it would be, that would hold 20 to 30 people. And so when they're having the Lord's Supper, it's not like ours, not a room like this and not like our Lord's Supper where we have, that's too big. When we have like a little thing of bread and we have a little thing of juice, they were having full-blown meals. That's okay. The Bible doesn't command it. That's just what they did. And we do that sometimes too. We do that once a year. Our Thanksgiving service is big, just giant meal. And we gather, we sing, we worship, have a little, short little sermon, testimonies, baptisms, and we take Lord's Supper. That's typically what every week would look like for them. They would gather, they were Lord's Supper, they're having it at night probably. It's Sunday, it's a work day for them. And so they would have this big meal. So what you have is you have people eating in this nice room that can hold only 10 folks with couches, people eating there. And then another part of the house, you have people eating over there, far away. And the point is not the distance. The point is the, the tier quality of each room. That nice dining room, that would be the host and then whatever other friends he picked to come eat there. And everyone else would have to go eat in the other room. And it's not like a meal in our time, that Thanksgiving service or a family gathering. Everyone eats the same thing. Thanksgiving. You all have dry turkey, some kind of ham, some sweet potatoes, some corn stuff, some stuffing. Everyone eats the same thing. There's not like a secret pantry where it's like, if you make this kind of amount of money, you can have this kind of turkey. We get the fried turkey in here. But this is what would happen in ancient cultures. It was normal. This nice dining room had nice food, had more upscale food, costly food. The other room, they would have cheaper, normal food. That's normal in Corinth, normal in ancient Rome. So it's not like they dreamt up this kind of like crazy scheme. This is what the culture did. The easiest way to think of it would be like flying. You have first class and you have coach or now economy. And they pay for those seats, whatever. It's the same concept. They make more money in Greco-Roman Corinth. You get to sit here. Think that you get food. You get nice food in first class. In economy, you get a third of a soda. This is what's happening. But Paul says, I know this is normal in Corinth. This is not to be normal in the local church. Let's look at verse 20. He says, it's so bad that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's so off course and so off kilter, they think they're eating the Lord's Supper together. And Paul says, you have the trappings of the Lord's Supper, but you're not eating the Lord's Supper anymore. And this is a massive point for every church where we should all sit back and go, okay, we need to hear this. Because how easy it is to do things and not really be doing them. How easy was it for some of us to sing songs today to worship but not actually worship? But we think we are. How easy it is for us to hear but not actually hear. How easy it is for us to think of Jesus and to think things about Jesus but not worship Jesus or not remember Jesus. Because look at what's happening, verse 21. For in eating, so remember, not just the Lord's Supper, but also this big meal they're having. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. And what's the result? One goes hungry and one gets drunk. 
So when you read that, you can't think, man, they are really taken back all these little cups. That's a lot of, that's not what's happening. They're having this big meal and some people, they're not waiting for other church members. They're just eating. They didn't care. Oh, Bob's late again, whatever. And they're just eating. eating. I know he doesn't, you know, he's, his job's a lot harder. He, he has to work longer hours than I do. We, we normally would wait, but I'm too hungry. We got to eat. But Bob's coming. I know he's coming. So what? I won't see him anyways. I'm in the upscale room. Who cares? It's so bad that people are coming in hungry and they're not getting to eat anything. And Paul can't even believe part of it that people are getting drunk. And look at what he says, verse 22, just the first word. What? When you read the Bible, you need to pay attention. You shouldn't read this and go, okay, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have house? That's not how you read the Bible. You read it as one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? I mean, Paul can't believe it. He's flabbergasted. He's blown away. I can't believe this is happening. Look at what he says. Verse 22, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? So that's not the point of our gathering. That's not the point of the Lord's Supper. This is not about a big meal. Don't you have a place to eat? Then he asks some really forceful and pointed questions to get their attention. Look at what he says. Or, or do you just despise the church of God? Or do you just want to humiliate the poor members in your midst? This is, he's getting very aggressive with them. And look at what he says next. What shall I say to you? Basically, say, I don't even know what to say. I can't believe how far off you've gotten and how unloving and how prideful and how selfish this is happening. I, I think Paul is ticked. I mean, he's basically saying, I don't even know what to say to you guys. Paul's passionate about two things, and so should we. Two things present here one, gospel doctrine, and two, gospel culture. When one is off, they are both a scandal to the gospel. A church that has right doctrine, but its culture is unloving and it's gossipy, it's unwelcoming, backstabbing. It's a scandal to the resurrected Christ. And when a church that's loving and gracious and kind and welcoming, but they're liberal and they're wimpy and stale and blah in their doctrine, that also is a betrayal of the gospel. We must have both because we must see what Paul's establishing here is that we come together as sinners saved by Jesus. Every one of us. We come together as sinners saved by Jesus. There shouldn't be any kind of class or system or superstructure in a local church. No one is more important than anyone else in a local church. No one. No one on the stage, no one out there. No one is more valuable than anyone else in the local church. And we say it the other way. No one is unimportant in a local church. No one is eh. So we must stand guard against attitudes and actions that create little fault lines between us. That create subtle little fault lines under the surface, under the crust of our relationships that we can't see, that will one day crack. It should be totally evident in our doctrine and our culture that every member of this church is just a sinner saved by Jesus. We don't despise each other. We don't humiliate each other. Rather, we honor each other. There's nothing great about me, nothing great about you, nothing great about us, but Jesus. 
Nothing giving us a slight edge over someone, any other church, just Jesus. I was talking with a sister before, after the first service, and she just said, I just love our church. I mean, we are so uncool, but it's all about Jesus. I said, yes, I'm not trying to be cool. Who cares about being cool? We're just about Christ. Because the cross of Christ is the great equalizer of us all, no matter how moral you think you are. Only Jesus can save you. And some of us are probably more moral than others. Our past is a little cleaner. We don't have the the past that some of us have. It doesn't matter. Jesus alone saves us. No matter how immoral you think you are today, Jesus alone can save you from all of your immorality. No matter how wealthy, how pretty, how smart, how business savvy, how stylish, how how much Bible knowledge, it doesn't save. Jesus alone saves. And I know some of you might be thinking today, Jesus couldn't save me. Or Jesus wouldn't want to save me. If that's you, I just want to tell you, you've misunderstood Jesus. So don't allow yourself to be an expert on who Jesus is. Get to, know, just get to know some people in this room. As soon as you get to know some people in this church, you will quickly change your mind. Jesus saves people like them? Wow. I'm in. That's exactly what will happen because you will be blown away by Jesus because more and more I get to know more of the people in this church. I'm like, man, Jesus is amazing. Jesus has never turned anyone away that truly wanted to be saved by him, ever. Rather, it's people always turn away from him. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Jesus tells him the truth. He walks away sad. Jesus speaks to the crowds. They leave angry. Jesus even challenges his own disciples. You guys gonna leave too? But what do disciples say? What do people who believe in Jesus say? No, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Everyone who has been saved by Jesus is a story of supernatural grace. And by believing in his death for your sins and resurrection, you can be one too. And the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, stands as an invitation for you to believe. And it stands as an invitation for every Christian in this room to re-believe. The Lord's Supper isn't a kind of spiritual sticky note that we take every Sunday. Rather, we come together by Jesus to remember and be refreshed by Jesus. We come together because of Jesus. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That's huge. This is vital for us to grasp right now. I mean, I love that our church does the Lord's Supper every week. And I already preached a sermon on why we do it. You can, you can find that online, why we think it's biblical. But look at what Paul says. He, I received from the Lord. So I deliver to you. We should learn a lot from this. Paul didn't make up the Lord's Supper. The apostles didn't dream this up. The church didn't draw this up in some council in the second century. It is directly from the Lord Jesus himself. It's directly from Jesus. This is something Jesus wants us to do when we gather. He hasn't told us how many songs to sing, how long sermons should be, should we do announcements. That's all like irrelevant in the New Testament. What is essential, Jesus says, do this as often as you drink it 
and remembrance of me. It's vital for us to grasp that when you, in a few moments, when you're, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, and you're holding that cup and you're holding that bread, you are doing something that Jesus wants you to do. You're exactly where he wants you to be. And it brings him great honor and great glory. So we come to the Lord's Supper under the invitation of Christ. This is Christ inviting us to come. Come to me, all who weary and heavy laden. Take and eat. Take and drink. And Paul reminds us of the scenery of the Lord's Supper where this came up. Look at what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus. Great title for Christ, the Lord Jesus. On the night when he was betrayed. The cross looms in the background of this whole thing. This isn't just some kind of sentimental meal. No, the, the night he was betrayed, historically grounded, rooted, the night Judas sold him out, it's a signal of his cross and his blood. And then look at what he says. He took bread. We had given thanks, 24. He broke it and said, and now we hear words directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you hear these words, you're not just hearing them from Paul, you're not just hearing them from me, you're hearing them from the Lord Jesus himself. It's as though you are transported to that upper room and Jesus is looking right at you, speaking right at you, and if you have ears to hear, you hear it. You hear by faith Jesus saying, this is my body, broken for you. And we eat. And this is why the Lord's Supper is only for those who believe that Christ's body is for them. It's not for everyone. It's for those who believe that Christ's body really is for you. That Jesus died for you. You believe that? It means you're Christian. His body was for me. If you don't believe his body is for you, you don't take it. It's pointless. It's just a cracker. But by faith, everything's changed. You follow him and you eat it. You do this in remembrance of him. (laughs) When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, there is a, there is a, like a shipping container full of glories to grasp in there. We could spend hours just talking about that. Let's give you two. When he says, do this in remembrance of me, this means we don't do this in remembrance of us. We don't take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of us, but of Jesus. I think a lot of times we can take the Lord's Supper and we're not feeling spiritual, so we try to think about all the horrible things we've done and try to conjure up and try to get ourselves into a guilt trip and then, okay, thank you, Jesus, for all. That's not what we're supposed to do. Do we do this in remembrance of him? We don't look at ourselves, we look at him. So we don't, second, we don't remember our past. We just look to Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus wants our gaze and our hearts and our minds looking to him. And he says this with each element. That's what's amazing to me. He could have just said, take the bread and take the cup and do these in remembrance of me. But no, he says it about each one. Do this in remembrance of me. So he must want us to remember something specific about each element, the body and the cup. So what is it? Look at what he says. This is my body, which is for you. I think it is important that we consider and pause and think about, this is my body. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, speaking right to us, right at us, this is my body for you. 
What does Jesus mean by all of that? It's very easy to read it and just move on. But we should slow down and think about it. His body, he didn't always have a body. The eternal son of God, he took on lungs. He took on kneecaps and blood vessels. He took on a body for you. He lived a sinless, completely perfect, God-pleasing life in that body for you. And then he had that body ripped apart, tortured, nailed, and executed and crucified for you. And then his body went cold, organs shut down, heart stopped pumping, and became a lifeless corpse for you. And then he had that body buried in a borrowed tomb for you. And then his body kicked back on Easter Sunday for you. He rose from the dead by his own authority for you. And now he, as he has risen from the dead, he now sits on a throne of grace at the right hand of the Father for you. So when Jesus says, this is my body for you, we think about all of these things. What Jesus has done for you. This is what he means. And then he picks up the cup. Look at verse 25. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood. This new covenant, Jesus says, prophesied in Jeremiah 31, is now fulfilled in this cup. In my blood. It's come to pass. That's what he means by this. The new covenant prophesied and promised, it's here in this cup. And when you hold that little tiny silly plastic cup, you are holding the representation of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus. Prophesied in Jeremiah 31 on the screen. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What is it? I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So when you drink that cup, Jesus is saying to you by faith, if you believe it, the requirements of the law met written on your heart because of me, because of my blood. And now I am your God and you are my people. You, you know me and I know you. All of this is in remembering his blood and the beauty of the gospel, the, the beauty of Christianity, what makes Christianity so amazing, the whole sum of our message never to be diluted by anything else. I will forgive their iniquity. And I'll remember their sins no more. This is the message and battle cry of the church. This is amazing. I mean, Jesus is saying, I forgave all of your sins. (laughs) You remember, you are completely and thoroughly forgiven. Guys, the fact that we have to be told to remember Jesus ought to show us how incredibly weak we are. I mean, we can remember 
pointless lyrics to a song, but yet we forget about Christ. So the Lord's Supper is a built-in and embedded activity in the local church to help us remember Christ. To remember what? Because I bet every single one of us didn't perfectly remember this this week, and so we gather to say, remember this, that he has forgiven your iniquity. Thoroughly and completely forgiven. His blood paid it all. Every sin, every failure. Jesus says, remember me. I am your Savior. This is why every night when I put my 20-month-old son to bed, I just sing to him and I just sing the old song, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all again and again. And it's really for my benefit more than his. Because I need to remember every day that Jesus paid it all. Because it's easy to get bogged down. It's easy for condemnation to weigh, but to remember him. And I love, according to the last verse in Jeremiah, look at what he says. I will forgive their iniquity, yes, and then the next one, and I will remember their sin no more. That's amazing. God says, I'm not going to remember it. I'm casting it away. I'm not bringing it back up again. I won't ever put it in your face again. It's over. It's done. My son paid it all. I'm not remembering. So this is what's amazing. In the Lord's Supper, God is looking at us saying, I want you to remember that I do not remember your sins. And neither should you. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have confessed it, if you have sought forgiveness, you see it paid by the Savior. And there are some, we're going to talk about this in a moment, maybe you have sin that you're not confessing, that you're hiding, that you haven't repented of, and God will bring in discipline to show you that it must be brought to the light. But right now, today, do you believe the body and blood of Christ were shed for you? for your sins. It's one thing to believe that Jesus died. Everyone basically believes Jesus died. That doesn't make you a Christian. Believing that Jesus died for my sins, that he paid for my iniquities, that's what it means to be a Christian. You can believe in him today. The Lord has built in the eating of bread and the drinking of juice to be a symbol of faith. Believing is like taking a bite, taking a drink. Anyone can take a bite. Anyone can drink. You must only reach out with the empty hands of faith and receive Christ. And we do this, Christians do this, what? And remembrance of him. This is really twofold. We are remembering, but this word remember means more than jog our memory. In English, it means jog our memory. And it's actually, it's a word that's more graphic than that. We know what to dismember means. To remember. We're seeing ourselves attached to Christ himself. As crucified with Christ. As raised with Christ. As seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So our faith increases at the Lord's Supper. As we feed on him by faith, not physically, we know that this is not his actual flesh, and it's not his actual blood, but it's more than just jogging our memories. We, we are 
having our faith fed by Christ himself. We're, in a way, we're getting calories for our walk with him, for the race that we are to run so we'll endure till the end. It's a fellowship with Jesus himself. It's Jesus, as we read about in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word participation means the same word for community, for fellowship, for commune, community, communion. So is this not, the cup of blessing, is this not a community with the blood of Christ? Is it not a fellowship with the blood of Christ? The, the bread that we break and that we eat, is it not a community with Jesus' body? Is it not a fellowship with Christ himself? There is an active fellowship with Jesus here. So I want all of us to see, if you're a Christian, to see the Lord's Supper as more than just going through the motions, doing some religious thing, and solemnly remembering facts. It is more. It is fellowship with Christ himself. Real interaction with the presence of Jesus. He's here. He's here. He's among us. And he's joining us at the table. He's not rude. Some people believe it's just memory. That's it. Well, no, one, Jesus is here. Secondly, Jesus is everywhere. Thirdly, in Revelation, he walks among the churches. He walks among the lampstands. So he's here. And it's the Lord's Supper. If I know one thing about our Lord, I know he's not rude. He won't be a no-show to his own supper. He's here. And I love what Spurgeon says. He says, remember Jesus till you feel that he's with you. Till his joy gets into your soul and your joy is full. Remember him till you begin to forget yourself and your temptations and your cares. Remember him till you begin to think of the time when he will remember you and come in his glory for you. Remember him till you begin to be like him. We remember Jesus and at the same time we're being refreshed by Jesus. We're putting on display the glory of Jesus because we know that we, so we come together to live for Jesus until he returns. We come together to live for Jesus until he returns. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, look at what he says. Now what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we do it in remembrance of him and we do it in proclamation of him. Every time you eat the Lord's Supper, you are preaching. You proclaim his death. You proclaim what happened 2,000 years ago. You proclaim it in this moment. And at the same time, you're also looking forward, knowing that he is coming in. You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. When you eat the bread, you are preaching. This is why only Christians should take it. You are preaching the gospel. You're proclaiming his death. You are saying, by eating that bread, you're saying, Jesus died for me. My sins in my place, I believe it. He is my God. When you drink that cup, you are proclaiming, my sins have been forgiven. I am in the new covenant. God is my God. Jesus is my Lord. He has remembered my sins no more. This isn't a mere ritual. This is preaching. This is evangelism. This is encouragement. You preach it to yourself. You preach it to others. 
and you're preaching it to unbelievers in attendance. You are basically saying, by the cup and by the bread, I am saved by Jesus. And his body and blood are available to you too if you believe. And Christian, since you believe that, you are to live it. Since you believe it, you, you live it. And the Corinthians aren't living it. This is the problem. They aren't taking the supper in the right way. Now look at verse 28. Look at what's happening. So look what Paul says now. So let a person, so if you're going to take the Lord's Supper, here's what we do. Let a person examine himself then. So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, discerned ourselves truly, another way to say it, we would not be judged. Wouldn't be, 32 explains it perfectly. When we are judged by the Lord, so what is, what's happening? We're being disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is way important. The Lord's Supper cannot be treated lightly. It should not be flippant. The Corinthians are abusing it. And the Lord disciplines them swiftly. We are not beyond this. They're a part of the new covenant. They're local church. They're Christians, just like us. We're not beyond receiving, no one in this room is beyond receiving God's discipline for abusing the Lord's Supper. We may not abuse it in the same way, but we can still abuse it. We could take it with hypocritical and high-handed and be a complete disregard for holiness for knowing we're hiding a sin and not confessing it. That if you know there's something you must repent of. Every week, you know, like, oh, the sin, I just has a grip on me. My addiction to this, my, my pornography, my, my drinking, this, this adultery, and I'll, I'll go on and on on you know it. And you're hiding it, but the Lord knows it. And you do not be deceived. Your sin will find you out. And instead of confessing and repenting to the Lord who is safe, because if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But instead of confessing and repenting to the Lord and others as appropriate, you hide it, you take the Lord's Supper with a complete disregard for the body and blood of Jesus, and you are inviting the swift discipline of God in your life. We ought to, as Paul says, to examine ourselves, like the psalmist says, Lord, reveal to me any unclean way. All of us should do this. I think just quickly, every Sunday. Right before we take it, a little time we pray right before, Lord, is there any unclean way in me? Reveal it to me. You don't have to be neurotic about it. Like, there must be something, and I'm going to wait until I find no, you know, I think just a real quick, Lord, is there any unclean way in me? And you, nothing's, you know, and I just think the spirit and your conscience work together, and if nothing comes up, you just go, okay, I'm going to walk by faith. But if something does come up, oh, oh man. I was really unloving to my spouse last night. It even bothered me when I went to bed. I, Lord, forgive me. Confess that a sin. You spouse, forgive me, please. I'm so sorry. I love you. Or, oh, I'm so, I'm tempted. Sexual morality often, Lord, and I stumble. So you confess it. 
confess it as sin. You'll, you'll welcome the grace of Christ. And maybe you discern a division, a conflict. You, you confess it, you repent it, you make it right. This is serious. Because some of the Corinthians are getting sick. This is exactly what it says, verse 30. That is why. Why? They're not discerning themselves. They're living in unrepentant sin. They don't care. They're being heavy-handed and hypocritical. And he says, this is why some of you are weak and you're ill. Some of you even die. This may seem jarring to us, and it should. We shouldn't read this and go, well, that's kind of normal. We should read this and go, whoa. That's extreme, maybe, some of you are thinking. That's extreme. That kind of feels overreaching. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. How can God do that? Listen, you're thinking along those kinds of lines, you are in severe danger. Because now you have promoted yourself and you have demoted God. As though God doesn't know what a divine being is allowed to do or not or should do. God can do this and he does do this. I don't know, some of us might be thinking, I'm sick. My friend is sick. Is this because of sin? Now, listen, we have a lot of suffering going on in our church. At least three ladies who have or have had cancer in the past year, other sicknesses, other illnesses, some family members near death, and a lot of suffering. So can't be flippant or simplistic here. book of James says, James 5, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And, so same thought, still connected. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, same thought, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be forgiven, you may be healed. I expect to say that you'll be forgiven, but it's all connected. You may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So on a level, yes, this happens. God uses this to bring sin to light. And at the same time, must also see that that's not always God's reason. This is not always why it occurs. This is not always why it happens. And we should never automatically assume because of some illness, because of some tragedy, oh, there must be sin going on. There must be something. That is a satanic way to operate. You remember Job and the great devastation and sickness that came upon him? His friends assumed he must have sinned. And they grill him chapter after chapter after chapter. Confess it, confess it. And he says, I've done nothing. They assume he must have sinned in some kind of way to warrant this kind of extreme discipline from God, but he didn't. They they were too narrow in their thinking. Rather, what we see in the book of Job, rather there is a battle in the heavenly places playing out over Job's suffering a battle between God Almighty and Lucifer himself arguing over whether or not God's people will be faithful to God in light of suffering. And God says, let's look at Job. A cosmic war in the background of his suffering. 
Job never knew it. His friends never knew it. But we know it now. And that might be what's happening with some of us. There are 10,000 other reasons why these things happen. We don't know. But what we do know, no matter what assails us, no matter what comes our way, no matter what hits our path, we remember Jesus. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised in the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We look to him. It's all about Jesus. If you're heavy with sin, the answer is to not let the cup and bread go by. Rather, God is providing you an opportunity to confess and to repent truly. Truly, truly, he says to you, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Lord's Supper isn't for sinless people. If it were, none of us could take it. It's not for perfect people. It's for sinners who look to Jesus by taking his body, by taking his blood and saying, I believe Jesus died in my place for my sins. His blood poured out for me that he is my Lord and my God and I'm proclaiming his death until he returns. This is the point of the Lord's Supper, remembering him. And and if we do these things, examine ourselves, remember him, when we come together, it will be for the better. It will not be for worse. It will be for the better. Let's pray. If you're serving the Lord's Supper today, I invite you to, to come forward. And church, as we go to the Lord's Supper, even now, now is the time to examine yourself, to discern your heart, your soul, to ask the Lord if there is any unclean way in you. And maybe even now is the time where you you want to be saved by Jesus. You don't believe his body and blood were broken and shed for you until now. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. Lord Jesus, as we remember you now, as we eat and as we drink, would you help us by the Spirit to look to you to look past anything that's hindering a view of you, to clear the way, to confess sin, to repent, to look to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So help us now, Lord. And Lord, would you even work in the hearts of those who do not know you? Would you begin calling them unto yourself by the power of the Spirit? And Jesus, as our great God and Savior, your people now, we look to you 
And we rejoice that we are now in the new covenant by your blood, that all of our sins have been forgiven, that you remember our sins no more. And though our sins were red like scarlet, they have been washed white as snow. And now we are here as children of the Most High God. And it's in the mighty name of the Son of God that we pray. Amen.